0: 16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of
1: art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer
0: and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org/slash local. Welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music magazine. This week we're talking to Paul Morley, the pop journalist, musician and, more recently, classical music devotee. Brought up in Stockport, Paul cut his teeth in music journalism in Manchester. He then went on to write for the New Musical Express, where he rapidly became one of the paper's most respected critics, leading to regular appearances on radio and TV. In 1983, Morley and producer Trevor Horn founded ZTT Records, which soon hit both the top of the charts and the headlines with the release of Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Welcome to the Pleasure Dome album. In the same year, they also formed the group The Art of Noise, which had a string of hits including a cover of Prince's Kiss featuring Tom Jones. In more recent years, however, Paul has turned his attention towards classical music and in 2010 took part in a BBC4 documentary called The Art of Composing, which saw him study at the Royal Academy of Music for a year. In 2020, he charted his developing interest in a new book called A Sound Mind, How I Fell in Love with Classical Music, which has now been published by Bloomsbury. Paul talked to BBC Music Magazine's deputy editor Jeremy Pound over Zoom during the second period of lockdown in England and told him how, from his pop and rock background, he gradually fell under classical music's spell.
2: Quite often in these interviews, Paul, my interviewee will say that they've, they've picked up a violin at the age of three or four, kind of from a very young age, or played the piano. But I understand that your kind of entry into music, both classical and pop, I guess, was was fairly late on, was it?
1: Um, well, I, I started writing about music when I was very young. Um, I was a, a young teenager. I, I'd always wanted to be um, a writer, and and uh, always found that, uh, found that when I was younger that the best way into being a writer was actually to write about music. So, um, yes, I wrote about music from a very young age. And as a critic, I started writing for the New Musical Express when I was about 18, 19. Making music it came in different ways, really. Um, cause I, I worked, um, in recording studios for a while when I worked with ZTT. Um, I never learned to play an instrument and, and I've not actually, I mean, when I studied uh, music at the Royal Academy of Music for a television program, I couldn't. I believe at the, uh, at the beginning that I could actually study to be a composer without playing a musical instrument and it was pointed out to me by the head of composition that it was quite feasible somehow to be able to compose music without playing an instrument, which was quite, quite a liberation for me, really.
2: Yeah, so when you were kind of when you're very young, was there much music in your house at all, or is it completely kind of something you discovered for yourself?
1: No, there was very little music in the house. I've always found that quite interesting. That that, that there was, I think there was a soundtrack to South Pacific, um, a Jerry Lewis EP, the, the American comedian, and I think one Johnny Cash album. But very little music. It was almost like I had to find music for myself. Uh, almost driven to it in that sense, that the, the house seemed empty of music. And, and, and I suppose one of the odd places you would find it in the 60s when I grew up was on Top of the Pops, which which took on a, a value probably far greater than it should have done in terms of the intensity of this regular date with music that, that happened every week. So uh, I guess that's how I came into pop music so sort of um, solidly that this was, this was a, an escape route that I found as a very young child.
2: I think that's quite a familiar tale, actually, because I remember seven o'clock Thursday evening was kind of a, a time imprinted on the memory. That was the one one time you didn't want to miss. You had to be in front of the TV. That,
1: that's right. It was, it was, it's, it's difficult to explain now that we're surrounded by music and the music is available everywhere all the time. That This was uh, like every week this sudden uh, sort of desert island would suddenly appear in your front room and you clambered onto it and, and felt rescued. You know? And you had,
2: to, you had to grin and bear the last few minutes of Nationwide or something like that, wasn't it, beforehand, before you had this... this
1: before. There was always something strange before yeah. and after, yeah. And it was also something rather awkwardly that you sometimes did with all your family, whether you wanted to or not. Yeah. You know.
2: And now then, what was the first piece of classical music which kind of really caught your ear?
1: Well, it, it, it's interesting in terms of defining classical music in that sense. I suppose I've written a book about trying to sort of break out of those definitions. Uh, but, it, but thinking about the question, I, it, it occurred to me that it, it, it looks on papers if it wasn't necessarily a piece of classical music because it was by the um, musician or non-musician in a way, Brian Eno, who I'd started following when he was in Roxy Music. And then he um, went solo from Roxy Music very early on. I didn't know much about his background. I was just a fan of Roxy Music. And he made... Um, he, he, one of the things he did when he when he left um, Roxy Music was he launched a, a record label called Obscure, Obscure Records, was it was in fact a sort of fascinating and fantastic study of um, modern Amer- uh, sort of modern minimalism, if you like, modern experimental music. Um, it, it featured lots of people like Gavin Bryars and uh, John Adams and um, John Cage. It was an extraordinary ten record set of, of of what would be called classical music, but because Brian Eno did it, it it, it was almost still filed under pop. And Brian Eno himself had a um, a record on there, discrete Music, uh, and it was instrumental music. So I suppose, in a, in a sense, there was a definition of classical music for you, but I didn't think of it as classical music. And, and on there, he did um, a kind of set of versions of an old canon, canon in D major, Johann Packelbel. I hope I've pronounced that right. You have indeed. And to this day, I'm still stumbling <laughs> on pronunciation. Um Uh, And and for me, it was just mesmerising. It was a mesmerising piece of music. I didn't think of it as anything in terms of its genre. It was just a very exciting piece of music that opened up incredible um, new territory for me in terms of what I liked. And then subsequently, I realised that Brian Eno had come out of a very particular um, background himself in terms of studying with Cornelius Cardew and being inspired by the American minimalists in the 60s, Lamont, Lamont Young, Steve Rice. I knew none of this at the time. It was just another thing that one of my favourite pop stars had done, and at that time you would, you, would, you know, avidly collect everything they did. He also made a record that was very important to me in 1973 with the uh, guitarist from King Crimson, Robert Fripp, called No Pussy Footing, which was like a, a, a really exciting loop of, of, of guitar music fed through various machines to create this almost sonic sculpture. And again, I didn't think of it as being classical music or anything. I just thought of it as being a, an amazing piece of music, almost a, a religious artefact, if you like, that, that 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 set me off into finding out where Eno himself had come from. So I think of those pieces as being very much one way into classical music, but what it did in a way was put me in touch with the very much the experimental wing of classical music and where it made contact with the experimental ring, wing of rock music in, in terms of the electronic musicians of the 60s that came out of Germany like themselves had come out of Stockhausen. So in a way, I'd made my first move into classical music, into its avant-garde areas. And I and I suppose for many decades, I sort of stayed on those shores. I didn't really move further in any direction from there because of all sorts of my own snobbery. And, and I guess the snobbery I felt from within classical music, it didn't seem to be for me. So I I stayed for a long time on, on those shores that had been inspired by Brian Eno.
2: New book there sound mind how i fell in love with classical music and i want to go back to that a bit little bit later but it's interesting that brian eno work piece of course was based on pachelbel's canon which has actually inspired quite a number of of pop songs over the years kind of from the village people to the lights of the farm and then um Coolio as well actually so it's it's kind of almost like a recurring theme throughout pop as well isn't it
1: well, it, it's funny that um, Pete Waterman of Stock Aitken and Waterman, for him, it, it, the the bass rhythms and the the structure of the music, the the, the repetition of this these bass notes, uh, it, it sort of inspired all of um, Stock Aitken and Waterman's greatest hits. And uh, it is interesting in terms of the Let It Be's as well by the Beatles and the Wonder by Oasis. This pattern that Packel Bell had had uh, uncovered. Um, seems to have inspired a, an enormous amount of a certain sort of um, very um, addictive popular music, and it was it was it was incredibly funny to see that Paul, Pete Waterman was so sort of um, committed to what Packle Bell had done, and and basically stole a lot of those ideas to create this incredibly sort of sort of um, popular, high-energy music from the 1980s. And I, and I guess, it, in a sense, I'd always found that as sort of one of the things that started inspiring me to, to think about classical music in a way, once I did start thinking about it as a writer, was its enormous influence, certainly in its radical, early avant-garde periods over time, that it influenced so much of popular music in terms of the way that it had leaked over and that a lot of musicians would, would would take a lot of the techniques and their knowledge of classical music to, very unpopular classical music as well, if you like, to, to actually inspire a lot of the most popular music in the world. And I always thought that was quite fascinating.
2: In your own work with The Art of Noise, of which you're a member, the group The Art of Noise, um there is, of course, leanings towards classical there, particularly in the in the album, the seduction of Claude Debussy. So obviously, you had a particular kind of leaning
1: towards him. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Once I'd started thinking a little bit more about a wider history of of music, if you like, outside what I'd been writing about for twenty, thirty years, so that would be the one that began, if you like, in the nineteen fifties, popular culture, the, the teenage era. I was, I was, I I started to get interested in where certain things emerged and i got very fascinated with that period in the late 19th early 20th century in france the ravel debussy satie period and i i, I suppose that was my first move away from the the avant-garde shores if you like you know t- trying to sort of create a map for myself of the history of classical music i was also always interested when i would read about bill evans who 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 played with miles davis talking about how he was influenced by the piano playing of that particular period And I suppose as a writer, even when I was working with the Art of Noise, I was always interested in sort of investigating, if you like, certain histories and how things had happened. And it occurred to me, listening to more and more Debussy, especially Debussy and Ravel, that they were almost, that sort of strange period between the, the, the score being the way that Music had been recorded and stored, if you like. And then what would happen in the 20th century when it was the, the, the recording studio was used to to record and store music, that kind of incredible join between one period of history and another. Um, and, and they seem to be the missing link, and they seem to be writing their music almost as if they were aware of multi-track techniques that would be used later in the 20th century. Their the, 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 the way of approaching composing music was very different from those that had come before. Um, And it seemed to be that they were in their head using multi-track recording, the way they edited the music, the way that they layered it. It's something that that would happen more and more once you could record music. But, of course, they were just before those techniques. And so, in a way, the Art of Noise seduction of Claude Debussy album, which was made at the end of the 20th century, was a sort of homage, if you like, to the the way that uh, Debussy had invented many of the techniques that would be used later in the 20th century, once there was sophisticated recording available. And I I wanted to make that join between the two traditions, if you like, and and, and honour that moment, that incredible sort of leap of the imagination when these musicians started to think ahead to when there would be different sorts of machines and different ways of recording and storing music. Uh, And I I, I guess I, I decided that that was, in a way, very much... The beginning of, of 20th century music, not just because of its chronological position, but but also the techniques that, that, that Debussy and Ravel were using. And of course, um,
2: it's a piece by Debussy, an opera by Debussy, which I understand was one of your most memorable concert or opera going experiences ever. Can you tell me about that?
1: Well, Peleas and Melisande, certainly at the time, you know, I was beginning to, even in the last few years, opera's always been something that I've been very anxious about, if you like, um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, uh, and what I loved about, I mean, it was interesting, you, you've asked me four questions about pieces of music today. And, and, and at first, every single answer was actually Debussy. <laughs> so I had to pull out of that <laughs> slightly because I suddenly thought, oh no, that sounds like I've actually learnt nothing in the last 20 years of this adventure I've been on because all my answers are what they would have been 20 years ago, Debussy. But, but, but the opera, this one in particular, was obviously the only one that Debussy wrote uh, and I, I love that idea that he, I think he did it the same with the string quartet. Really, he, he made one perfect one, and then didn't have to do it again. And, and there's something about the experience of seeing it as well. It was a, I saw it at Glyndebourne um, again, a, a place, uh, and I write about this in the book, a, a location and a place that I've been very anxious about, and the whole sort of um tradition uh, that sort of seems set in stone and and filled with secret code words that I didn't know but the experience of seeing debussy's opera was was so extraordinary because it's almost like a, a an opera for people who don't really like opera and it's so intense and everything seems to be made of music. You know, the, the scenery seems made of music. Um, the setting seems made, made of music. The characters seem made of music. It's a dream about a dream about a dream. And the world outside is is very distant. And it, it, it seems to be an end-of-century piece of nervousness that made sense at the end of the 20th, uh, 19th century and at the end of the 20th century and became very well you know i played a lot again at the end of the 20th century and i could understand why because it's got that sense of 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 of, of what the hell do we do all the characters just seem to be placed into existence and and, and have to deal with it and it, it seemed to especially now as well it seems to be a considerable help and and makes you realize how music does help you prepare and deal with extraordinary turbulent times I hold them in and it was such a hallucinatory experience actually seeing it live uh that i started to begin to have a still ambivalent but 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 increasingly intimate affair with opera and i began to see its point this this creation of a of a, a fantasy this creation of a a world that seems so separate from the real world it seemed to have its benefits that that once you separated all the the glide bornness the the formalities the the obscure you know the, the the obscure rituals that it seems to be involved the the difficult the the, the strange sort of cultural elitism that, that was involved once you sort of broke through all of that and got to the pure essence of the of the experience and the music and 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 the the use of visuals and story and music—I—I—I I, mean—it was definitely an opera for non-opera lovers, but it's increasingly led me on to other operas, and I guess it was also, you know, realizing in 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 terms of what I began to understand once I I started to think more about classical music, his own. Um, um, sort of anticipation, his own desire to create an opera after Wagner, I thought was fascinating, you know, the the next stage, on what would be the next stage on after Wagner? And I found this increasingly when I looked at uh, the whole history of classical music, there'd be these moments where it seemed to have reached a certain climax, a certain... it couldn't go any further, and then something, someone comes along to take it further. And for me, this opera in particular was one of those moments where somebody seems to have gone as far as you could possibly go with the form and the format, and then someone comes along and takes it even further.
2: It's one of the fascinating things about classical music, isn't it? Is that although it seems as though it develops very organically, there are these figures throughout who are very aware, aware of their position within the history of classical music and how they want to shape it next. And they actually do make this this kind of conscious effort to take it in new directions.
1: Yes, I mean, that was something that was important to me in terms of breaking through some of the barriers I had about classical music, understanding the radicalism of the the thinking, even if it was from the 17th, 18th, 19th century, that there was always radical moments, there was always transgressive moments, there was always moments of revolution, there was moments of moving on from something that had seemed to sort of um, become static and... and, and, uh, uh, and and conservative with a small say i was I was always fascinated that there was constantly someone coming along to work out what was happening next and i'd never thought of this before because it had been presented to me i guess usually in in a huge block uh of this is how it is rather than understanding the the um the radicalism of the composers who were involved and i'd I'd got fooled by chronology if you like i think that's why streaming was so important to me because all the music suddenly existed all in one place uh and, and instead of worrying that it might be 18th century or you know 1843 or 1756 it was just timeless literally timeless and you could start to piece it together in a in a in a in a in a different way, rather than worrying, you know, uh, uh, what period of history it had actually come from, and thinking thinking of the composers uh, operating as artists in their own time, dealing with the stresses and and crises they were in, and finding ways out, finding ways to use new instruments, for instance, you know, uh, this was, you know, I, I write a whole chapter in the book on the piano for that reason of suddenly realising it came out of nowhere and suddenly there was a whole way of dealing with the piano as a new instrument. Uh, and I'd never thought of that before, that, that that was as radical in its time as the synthesiser was in the 1950s and 60s. And it, it was it was a, a big help for me wanting to find a way in to deal with the music just as psychic energy, if you like, rather than worrying about the, the fashion and the context that had been given to it, and find a new context for it, if you like. For me
2: after even after 20 years of working as a music journalist, I'm still kind of staggered and just about how large a subject is. What I know, even though I know quite a bit, it's just a tiny little drop in the ocean. Do you kind of, are yes. you finding that as well?
1: Well, yes. And, and the way I represented it in the book was I started doing playlists and they would be maybe four or five pieces and then six or seven pieces. And then by the end of the book, there's, there's simply the final piece is the final chapter is just a playlist. And it's probably hundreds of pieces of music and I found that and, and this is why streaming was so important I think as a, a liberation of, 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 of discovering the music is one piece leads to another piece leads to another composer leads to another instrumentalist leads to another conductor and it was endless it was like infinite and absolutely and I think that was why I was always so disappointed with the way that the canon if you like had been presented to me because it was so narrow and and missed so much And there was so much music that didn't seem to have been brought forward with the canon. Uh, 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 And I suppose one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was not only to explore and explain something to myself, but also to point out all these different directions that you can go in and these different minds and different sort of um, ambitions that they had, that it hadn't been just fixed in place. It was constantly mobile and fluid and absolutely that you never stop. Uh, And you realise that you could just keep going on forever uh, in this kind of labyrinth, if you like, you know, uh, which um, for someone looking for something new in music, which I was at a certain age, uh, was was a tremendous sort of um, breakthrough. Uh, because one of the things that started to happen is I realised looking for new music, I always assumed new music meant music now that had just come out. And suddenly I realised that new music could just as much be from the, the 17th century, or the 18th century, especially now when you can stream it, because it's now, it's available now, it's it's on your machine now, it's out now. And you can break free of that sort of time uh, problem. Uh, And so, yes, I I, I was finding new music from all all over the last five, six centuries. And that that was an incredible um, breakthrough as well, personally.
2: Now, of course, for all the discoveries of new music and the wonderful world out there, I presume there's one piece which maybe has been with you for a long time, which has been a real go-to and has kind of remained a favourite throughout all your, your classical listening.
1: Well, was there, there one piece, when when I um, did the TV show, uh, a, a couple of um, documentaries uh, about how to be a composer at the Royal Academy of Music, the, 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 the point was that I would um, write a piece of music and I went through a little struggle about what this piece of music would be because there was all sorts of revelations to me. I, I think another one, naively, for a long period of time was the idea that classical music simply meant the symphony or the concerto. The big epic pieces of orchestral music, and it was it was uh, one of those again breakthroughs of mine that I had. this probably sounds daft if you experienced in this world. Was the idea that a lot of the great classical music, of course, is small ensembles, it's solo pieces, it's intimate, it's 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 very beautiful and lonely, and it's not the mass, the the, the bombast. It's these incredibly. Um, uh, personal uh, uh, pieces that come from uh, often quite accidental um, ensembles of putting piece, you know, pieces of of music together using certain instruments oh i 'll have that instrument, that instrument and that instrument uh, which was a big help for me as a composer oh I see so one of the main things about composing a piece of music is the instruments you choose to, you know to use and after flirting with the idea out of pure ego of writing a symphony I, I started to get very fascinated with the string quartet. And that was, I I, I guess, uh, not a small, uh, quite a small leap for me in a way because of my fascination within uh, pop and jazz with a a power trio or a jazz quartet or a quintet, you know, the idea of the four instruments. And I got, you know, first of all, I decided I would write a string quartet as my sort of piece for this particular television programme. And then I started to listen to string quartets. And one of the first ones I... I listened to was 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 the moment I fell in love with the string quartet was the the second quartet by Shostakovich, which was just, you know, uh an, an extraordinary moment when um I suddenly those moments when you hear music and you suddenly fix on it and it makes sense. I had a similar uh, experience with free jazz in the in the 1970s as a teenager, when it suddenly all made sense. And you don't hear it as difficult or strange or peculiar, but just as extraordinary contact with another person's mind. And so, Shostakovich's second quartet, and then finding out all the other, other ones that he'd written, the 15 over a certain three, four decades, and realized that the work of art, if you like, came across time. But it all began with the second um, quartet. <laughs> And every time I hear it now, I still got that feeling which you get from a great piece of music that every time I hear it, uh, I'm, I'm still hearing it for the first time. And it seems itself to have changed shape so that every time I hear it, it seems to have become something else. And and and, and in a way, that was my doorway into hundreds of years of the string quartet and, and hundreds of pieces of, of string quartet music. But that was the first the first piece, if you like. That was my awakening.
2: And of course, the, the second second string quartet by Shostakovich, is, it's kind of got everything in it, hasn't it? Because it's got that very sort of folky start. And then you've got the romance right. in the second movement, which is a slightly twisted, strange romance. It's not really... He's not playing ball, yes. he's not playing straight, is it? It's, it's a And it kind of four very different movements is a really great way to introduce yourself to the string quartet repertoire.
1: That's right, and, and the idea of the four movements and, and the idea that there were these so-called restrictions that composers were constantly trying to battle with, not just the lineup, but the idea of the movements, and, and then obviously some people don't bother with the movements. So absolutely, it was, the, it was luckily the perfect sort of introduction. I mean, I'd, I'd obviously loved the two that often get paired together, the Debussy and the Ravel quartets. And they were also um, incredibly, uh, you know, in in terms of my uh, sort of playlist of string quartets, they would be high up there. But I think that the Sostakovits was another one of those moments that broke me free of some of my shackles, some of my routines, if you like, and showed me other places to go. And and eventually another part of the book is a huge history of the string quartet. I write because I have this strange nerdy desire always to then explain it to myself. <laughs> so I don't, as a writer, I don't just hear the string quartet. I then want to explain the whole history to me, to you know, to, to put myself in it almost as a, as a, to put myself in the story itself about how did this happen and 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 why did it happen and and how come in 1944 or or whenever he he wrote it why was he writing it then and 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 how much was that up and i want to be in that story but then i don't i realize it can't just be the story of shostakovich it has to be the story of the string quartet so i have to piece that together
2: can you remind me and our podcast listeners again when exactly the how to be a composer documentary was made was it about 2009 about then 2010
1: it 2010 went to, yes it was on bbc4 and um, on and off, uh, informally, I studied composition at the Royal Academy of Music, and um, and uh, 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 that was another interesting moment for me as a writer: is that I fell in love with the score as a kind of quasi literary object. It was yeah. You know, I suddenly realised what it was doing and how it was transmitting information, and 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 got very excited by that. And also that, like I say, for a long time, that was the way that music had been held in place, if you like. It was the only way that the information was transmitted forward before recorded music. So I got... It became very mysterious and magical to me. And I realised that it, when technology collapses and all this stuff that we have at the moment goes down and the streaming sites disappear, there will still be these vessels carrying music forward and it gave you a kind of hope and optimism that even if things get a bit apocalyptic, <laughs> there, there have been these methods and messages written into history that will keep things going.
2: Absolutely. Now, of course... Although we have wonderful music history, there's always new recordings being made and new discs being produced. Um, what is your, your current listening favourite, your most recent discovery?
1: I was trying to think of, of literally what would be the album this week. I think it is out this week, I'm not sure. Um, is it David Gruss? Uh, sorry, uh, the pronunciation of this one would okay, be... Okay,
2: it's, it's David Griilzammer.
1: David Grailsammer, who I, I had a... a um, he, he put together... Scarlatti and Cage Sonatas a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, and I've always been interested uh, in terms of those musicians who put together things from different periods of time, because one of the things I found very interesting inside classical music, the institutions of it, the establishment, that they be very protectionist, if you like, very defensive about putting things together that they think didn't belong. I remember there was an album that was a big... Um, important one for me on ECM new series where there was Mozart put with Debussy. And I was really surprised when I read the reviews of this, that people were surprised that someone had put Mozart with Debussy. And I was surprised that they were surprised because it seemed to make so much sense. And David is very much one of those musicians Um, In the book, I write about Joanna McGregor, a pianist who does this a lot, who put things together. The the, 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 the more sort of rigid establishment within classical music is surprised about composers being put together. And on Labyrinth, um, it's an extraordinary sort of mixture of the Baroque and the modern pianists. uh, And it also has a a sort of um, a concept to it, if that doesn't sound too laboured, where he's basically... Responding to the turbulence of the times, and this was before this year. I think he's been working on it for a couple of years um, to, to to essentially create a sort of a, a, a antidote, if you like, to to the, the 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 oddness of the times. And and I was reading reviews of this particular record. He he, he, he puts Mozart on there, Johann back, CPE Bach, um, all sorts of different places from the Baroque to now. And even then, people would seem to be reviewing it as if there was a startling, and they were saying, well, at first it just looked like a random list, Uh, the idea that he would be putting this together, as if there was no real sort of method behind it. It was just simply, oh, I'll just play all this sort of stuff, and it doesn't connect. But but for him, it was very much a way of basing it around um Leos Janacek's overgrown path and using that as a central spine and creating his path of other composers as well, Uh, and did that thing that I really love where... It's not that he's just dabbling or just putting things together that don't uh, that don't belong with each other. He's not just sort of being um, some kind of random DJ, slicing things up and mashing things together in an arbitrary manner. There's a, there's, a, there's a purpose to what he's doing. And it is this sense that he's putting together radical minds, transgressive minds from different periods of time into one space and calling it labyrinth. And I'd often thought of, of the whole history of classical music as being a kind of labyrinth and, and an endless maze. And uh, it, it, it just seems to be also with my own exploration of making playlists, which seems to be a very contemporary way of responding to music, is that he, he, he essentially has made a kind of playlist and then played it himself. Uh, and it, it's another one of those records that I love because it seems to break some of the the patterns of classical music that you're not supposed to break. It's it's transgressive in itself by putting these composers together in one place that's never been done before. Uh, seems to cause still strangely some alarm in the in in the classical world, whereas for me it seems the most natural thing to do and I wish there was more of it and indeed, I wish there was more of it that breaks free and not of classical itself as well and breaks sort of outside of that that world and puts things together. I think one of the motivations to write the book in a way was to break down some of these genre barriers and borders that seem to sort of create alcoves where people nestle into them and don't break out I don't know what the ultimate purpose of it is if you do break out of these alcoves but it seems more healthy and more exciting that you do that you move around more and and this record labyrinth seems to be for me one of those um, classical albums that does that it isn't a series of set pieces by one composer or two or three composers that usually get put together but is, is trying to find a new route through you know obviously the overgrown path
2: I love the fact as well that the, you've, you've selected one track for us for, from this album to play. And as a journalist that you've actually gone from the Overgrown Path, the, the, the movement called world, Words Fail.
1: Yes, and what's funny about that is at the end of my book, in the, the long playlist that ends the book, coincidentally, it is the last piece on that playlist, which was a complete coincidence. I, I knew that he'd been doing this, but I'd never seen actually the kind of things that he was playing. And I thought it was incredibly fitting that the last piece, in fact, the last words in in that sense of the book, Words Fail, was in fact on this record. Uh, And I thought, oh, that that must mean something. I've made some sense of the universe by the fact that that's happened. This record that I was really starting to like and didn't even know that had happened at, at first is in fact the last piece on my incredibly long final playlist in the book. Which, to some extent, is my um, conclusion about the music, and a conclusion is words fail.
2: Excellent, and I think that is a a wonderful moment at which, rather than wonderful point at which to round up our, our little podcast. Thank you very much for this, Paul. Much appreciated. Thank you.
1: Enjoyed it.
0: That was journalist and author Paul Morley on the classical music that has shaped his life. Paul's new book, A Sound Mind: How I Fell in Love with Classical Music, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Tune in next week where we'll be speaking to another fascinating figure from the music world about their enduring musical loves. Do let us know what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read about all the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.